Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. excited about the 12th of December? Not particularly. The time for protest is over. It's time for leadership. And that is what this government provides. In every town and village in this country, Labour will be there giving a message of real hope where this government offers nothing. People have a very clear choice. If they want Brexit, they can vote for Labour or the Conservatives of the Brexit Party. And if they want to stop Brexit, they need to vote for the Liberal Democrats. to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. A warm welcome. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing and another big day. We're getting now with the impact of that poll, that YouGov poll, showing a likely Tory majority. The opinion poll supposedly more accurate than most, Caroline. We're going to talk about all that later, of course. We'll also talk about a rigorous testing of the costs of various parties' manifesto programmes. Yeah, indeed. So that's the IFS take. This is the think tank, uh, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. They'll be joining us. We did, of course, speak to YouGov earlier uh, this morning on Bloomberg Radio. So they did go into the details of how that MRP uh, result and, and forecast for the election uh, was come about. It was a really interesting conversation. But in the end, it's only a poll. It, exactly. <laughs> we have to keep saying. Yeah, only one. Uh, now, let's talk about one of the more unusual features, actually, of this election, Roger, is the number of high-profile independent candidates who are standing. People who have left one of the main parties, often after many years in senior positions and many are now standing in their old constituencies ah but without party affiliation they're relying on local and national uh, their own local and national standing to get themselves re-elected so I'm thinking of names like Ivan Lewis and David Gork Dominic Grieve Chris Leslie Anna Subri Anne Milton some of course you know, bigger names than others but they do include our next guest and that's Gavin Shuka yeah now Gavin is standing as an independent in Luton South he's a former shadow international development minister who left the Labour party in February 2019 over Brexit and anti-Semitism. At the same time, Chuka Amuna left as well and others, and they formed the independent group in Parliament, sat as that, uh, and then Gavin left that in, in group in June to sit as an independent MP in the House. Now, he joins us now. So, Gavin, welcome. Thanks very much for being with us. Um, let me ask you, uh, first of all, what chance do you think you have standing as an independent in Luton South without party affiliation as an independent? Well, look, the one thing we know is that, in general, independents don't generally tend to win these seats. That said, it's a funny kind of election, and uh, a huge number of people look at what's on offer from these two legacy parties, and they're making a judgment about that when they come to vote. Of course, we've got an additional dynamic now, which is, in many of these seats, including my own, some of the other parties are standing down to try and clear the way. For example, the Lib Dems here locally have stepped down based on my record on the European Union, and endorsed. So mm-hmm. I, I actually think, um, although uh, people are probably not going to get uh, massively poor through um, voting against uh, independence as a massive cohort getting through, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw one or two doing so. OK. Does that include you, sir? Well, I hope so. Uh, and we're trying everything we can to try and maximise it. Uh, you know, here in Luton South, it's an unusual seat. 
Uh, the Labour Party have selected a pro-Brexit candidate. The Tory party have done the same. The Brexit party, obviously, are going to give you Brexit as well. And so actually being the only Remain candidate that can win, as well as the incumbent uh, here, and as well as someone that's put everything on the line. So are you being challenged by a Liberal Democrat where you are as well? I'm so sorry? Are you being challenged by a Liberal Democrat as well? No, I'm not. The Lib Dems have stepped down and endorsed me in this seat. And of course, if you look at the other independent seats around the country, uh, many um, have received help from the Lib Dems and from the Greens also. Mm, OK, so then in terms of how you actually go about campaigning without party support, without the money, I mean, just looking at the sums that, for example, the Tories have managed to raise in order to spend in each of the constituencies, you know, they have significantly outstripped Labour. So how do you actually go about doing the campaigning, you know, doorstep to doorstep? What's the reaction been from, I mean, obviously your constituents that, or f- former constituents that, that know you already? Well, the reaction's pretty warm and obviously if you've been a member of parliament for 10 years and you've lived in the seat all your life you're still going to get um, good responses but on the issue you raise around the money and so on there's no doubt at all independents have a huge disadvantage in terms of their spending over party political candidates not least of all because the election legislation has been written by the political parties Uh, it's an area that we'd want to look at i think um, off the back of the election but um Actually, there is a disadvantage as well for those larger parties. They can only spend a small amount promoting their local candidate. The rest is pushing their own party leader and policies. And so if you're the Labour Party right now, you can't really spend the money on your party leader. If you're the Tory party right now, you can't really push your policies. But but what 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 resources do you have to campaign with, Gavin? I mean, have you you've got a local uh, money-raising venture? Go fund me, something like that? Yeah, sure. I mean... Far be it to convince your uh, listeners to come onto our website, but if you go to gavinshuka.org, you can donate. A large number of people have. Uh, On average, they're offering small funds, but there's a lot of them. And Mm. it's not even just people within my own seat. It's people that feel that these two legacy parties have let them down, and they want to see something different. The bottom line is, unless you vote for something different, you're not going to get a different result. Okay, but given the difficulties of getting over the line in this first-past-the-post system, and you've explained all the difficulties of campaigning, of not, you know, potentially not having enough money versus the big parties, why not simply join the Liberal Democrats if they have endorsed you? What are you offering that is different from your old party, the Labour Party? You know, why stand when it's it's such a difficult, uh, you know, objective, and you have so little clout potentially in Parliament for your constituents? Well, look, I'm the incumbent MP. I've been elected three times uh, to this seat. I've done that uh, in many cases despite my party, not just uh, because of it. Uh, I honestly believe that the choice in this seat is between hard left and hard Brexit. And that's no choice at all. And I think it's incumbent on people to give, give an option. Now, you're absolutely right. Uh, your framing of the piece is correct. Independents don't generally tend to win these seats. But I'm afraid, unless there's someone on the ballot paper that can steer a course through those two um, very difficult outcomes for my constituency, that's what people will be lumbered with. But, but why not the Liberal Democrats, Gavin? Because, as you say, they've backed you. Uh, they've said they we're not putting up against you. Why don't you just become a Liberal Democrat? Well, you're absolutely right. I'm really happy to have the support of the Lib Dems. Uh, and others have gone to join them. But look, I walked out of my party in February of this year on an issue of integrity. I could not campaign to put Jeremy Corbyn into number 10 Downing Street. 
for me, I realised the only thing that would force me to make the leap into the Lib Dems, into a party that isn't my heritage and background, would be the impending doom of an election coming. And, uh, you know, some things are just human. I, I didn't feel that, for me personally, there would have been any integrity in going and joining the Lib Dems uh, ahead of this election, and therefore I haven't. The consequences of that will play out. But, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to do something that's true to yourself. Is it policy or personnel in terms of the Labour Party, i.e. if Jeremy Corbyn, let's say, were to do very badly at this uh, general election and uh, he left or was ousted, would you then return to the Labour Party? Uh, What is the big sticking point when it comes to your former party? No, I'm not going back to the Labour Party. But to be clear, you know, Jeremy Corbyn may be replaced. The Corbyn project will not be. My own judgment, uh, and it's backed up by actually many people that have remained in the Labour Party, is what we're seeing is a, a shift in, you know, a whole generation um, towards the kind of anti-West, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, ex- politics of the extremes, the shutting down of debates, all of these things, each power base on the Labour Party has been systematically captured. There are people that say, oh, don't worry, just stay and fight. Uh, but I don't see any evidence of them doing both. And at the end of the day, you've got to make a judgment about it. There is a very real prospect that my own judgment uh, to uh, not have to go and campaign to put him into number 10 may cost me my job. But there are things that are more important than that. And in a politics that's going to the extremes, we have to have some people that are willing to stand up and call it out. But what are you going to stand for? I mean, let me put myself in the position of one of your constituents, Gavin. You knock on my door, you see a vote for me. I say, well, what can you do for me? If you're an individual, an independent, you're not part of a voting block. There's almost nothing you can do for me or put through policies or anything like that. Why should I vote for you? For starters, the other two options in this race are hard left or hard Brexit, both of which are going to desperately affect my constituency, where we have Vauxhall, EasyJet, where actually we're a tolerant community together and we're not going to the extremes. But, but, but you I've as an individual can't record, do anything, that's the point. Got, you you may got, have the right views, but you can't actually do anything. Roger, I've got a track record over the last 10 years that I can point to that establishes the things I've done for my constituency and my community. You're absolutely right. Independents don't tend to propose legislation. But I've been clear and consistent of the things that I do stand for, and I'll support those initiatives in the next parliament to make a difference. OK. What do you mean by anti-West? What, what is that when it comes to Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party? What is an anti-West view? Well, Jeremy Corbyn has a worldview which starts with every problem that is in the world is probably related to something that we've done. Now, while I'm neither... We, or, who do you mean by we? Uh, people living in the West. I mean, I'm, I'm neither a hawk nor a dove. I've voted for military intervention and against it, I've opposed the Iraq war. I'm someone that takes these decisions very seriously. But when you see someone like Jeremy Corbyn parroting lines out of the Kremlin in response to the Skripal attack, when you see his consistent behaviour siding alongside uh, people that are anti-West in every situation, it's not just his behaviour, it's his instinct. And I don't think these fit to be put into number 10. Gavin, Labour people will say, have said to me, you're a traitor. You're someone who stood with the Labour Party for many, many years. People voted for you and you've just thrown them aside. What do you say? Well, it's not true, is it? The Labour Party has fundamentally changed. And I don't think you're seriously trying to suggest to me that it hasn't. You know, this is a fundamentally different Labour Party than the one um, that I joined, that I've campaigned for and I've been part of. And... Actually, I have to say, the majority of ordinary people that will vote in this election already know that. No one's coming out to vote Labour with a huge degree of enthusiasm in this seat. 
They want something that is sensible and mainstream. And I'm afraid at the end of the day, you have to make a judgment, a personal okay. judgment about whether or not you are ultimately propping up the credibility of that project. That's the decision that many of us made back or, this year. And we- I think it's the right one. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. So what else is around today? Labour has unveiled a plan to plant two billion trees in the next 20 years. And uh, one of my colleagues has worked that out. It's 166 a minute. A minute? For 20 years. Okay, that's sounding pretty tricky. Mm. Uh, but Labour also talking about creating 10 new national parks. That sounds uh, pretty appealing. It's all part of a rewilding policy intended to tackle the climate emergency and also help natural habitat. So quite interesting. And a sense perhaps that Labour is trying to move the agenda on from where they haven't been too happy with it in the last week or so, which of course has been about anti-Semitism. Let me quote uh, a piece from the Metro, in fact, today. Uh, it's a piece by Jennifer Lippmann, who, and the title is Labour's poisonous anti-Semitism means I can't vote for the party I once loved. She says, waking up to the chief rabbi's comments describing anti-Semitism in the Labour Party as a new poison, my first thought was sadly, he's right. All parties have bad seeds, she says. If this election has shown anything, it's that all could do with improving vetting operations. Certainly the Conservatives deserve criticism. But she says an ongoing failure to address those those bad seeds is the problem. As we mm. approach the third decade of the 21st century, it seems impossible that Her Majesty's official opposition continues to entertain the world's oldest hatred. Impossible, but also the reality, she says, facing British Jews. Yeah, now this is a story that was picked up by Therese Raphael in terms of the issue of anti-Semitism. Is Corbyn an anti-Semite? Question mark. It no longer matters. Therese Raphael really slamming the Labour Party uh, leader for essentially uh, not simply dealing with this issue straight away and decisively uh, allowing it to sort of uh, uh, hang around. The Labour leader has uh, left British Jews gripped by anxiety, as the chief rabbi put it, and there are only bad excuses. So that's on the Bloomberg Terminal by our opinion columnist, Therese Raphael. And finally, from the papers, The Guardian, there's a piece by Aditya Chakraborty. Can the radical left win power in the UK? The world is watching. Now, Aditya's putting it in the context, I guess, of many other things that have been happening in the world. He says, why flirt with a universal basic income when this week's headlines show some low earners could wind up paying more tax under the proposals? Why should renationalising rail take priority over ensuring more buses between towns and villages? He says, the choices in front of us are stark. Western politics has often been jointly defined by the US and UK leaders. Roosevelt, then Attlee, defined mm-hmm. social democracy. Reagan and Thatcher ripped down the edifice. Blair and Clinton set off together on the third way. The next generation, Aditya says, could be defined by Trump and Johnson. Or, he says, it could have hope instead. (laughs) Very good. Okay, so that's uh, just some of the interesting news stories and newspaper articles. But of course, actually, the big story that has dominated the headlines has been this YouGov MRP poll. It's put Boris Johnson's Conservative Party on track to win a 68-seat majority, its biggest in more than three decades. The poll correctly predicted a hung parliament last time around for Theresa May in 2017, hence why it's been so hotly anticipated. YouGov's political research manager, Chris Curtis, uh, says that a hung parliament though, could still easily happen. Have a listen. 
I know we're saying there's going to be a big Conservative majority at the moment, but if you look at the data underlying this, it doesn't need to be a massive shift uh, in terms of the national polls in order to change things. There are 30 seats where we've currently got the Conservatives ahead by less than 5%. Now, if you see the Labour Party starting to squeeze the national polls a bit more, closing the gap, take it, mm -hmm. closing the 5% gap in those seats, it's very easy to um, see how we could end up in a sort of hung Parliament territory. Not to say we will, but it's definitely possible. That's YouGov's political research manager, Chris Curtis, slightly undermining his own poll, I thought, there. But anyway, let's bring in Bloomberg's Ewan Potts to talk about this. So, Ewan, first of all, I mean, we've bigged it up. It's the MRP poll. It's like no other poll. Why? Yeah, multi-level regression and post-stratification. I've been practicing that uh, all <laughs> morning. Now, just to explain what the hell this is. Uh, it's this a is, yoga position, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is also that, yes. Uh, but in terms of the polling world, uh, the way that this poll works is a very, very big poll, which, as we say, predicted uh, the result uh, very closely uh, last time. They polled 100,000 people. The idea is they want to work out how different types of voters are going to work. So, for instance, a woman in her 50s who reads The Guardian, YouGov will be able to say with some certainty they reckon there's a, a X percentage chance she'll vote Conservative and X percentage chance uh, she'll vote Labour. And then she ha they have the demographic data for every single one of the constituencies across Great Britain. And then they add them all up together and they have a prediction for the number of seats. It's very different to how polls uh, work elsewhere. And as I say, last time, uh, they were pretty spot on. Not quite spot on, but they certainly predicted that May would lose her majority, unlike uh, all the other polls. Yeah, so it really is data, data, data. That is what is the most important thing, really, it seems, in elections. Although some caveats as usual. Yes, well, pretty uh, interesting uh, results. Uh, in terms of caveats, YouGov do say that this is just a snapshot, uh, as with all polls. So this is what they think would happen if the election was today, or more accurately, uh, if the election had taken place sort of over the last seven days, because the fieldwork uh, was done uh, over the last uh, seven days. They do say this is not a prediction. It is just uh, where we are at the moment. And, of course, another thing, it may not be right this time. Just because they were right last time, this is only the second time they've done it, perhaps it was a fluke last time. So we'll find out in two weeks' time whether this will be uh, another good one or perhaps a dud. Well, the key point about it, of course, is it does suggest that the Tories might have a workable majority, which uh, would it possibly mean that they will be in position to do what they say in their manifesto. And we do know what that is because the party manifestos are in. And the verdict from the Inti Institute for Fiscal Studies is nothing short of, well, scathing, frankly. So thanks to you and Potts, let's bring in the IFS research economist Ben Zaranko. Uh, so, Ben, first of all, the Conservative manifesto, we heard there the possibility or perhaps even likelihood, depending on what you think of the polls, of the Tories forming the next government. What do you make of their policies that they put out there, particularly in terms of things like public spending, in terms of the feasibility of doing it? I think the key takeaway from the Conservative manifesto in terms of its tax and spend promises is that if you think everything is pretty much OK now, if you're not a fan of, you know, we need big change, Tory manifesto is for you. There's very little in there in terms of new tax rises or cuts. There's very little in there in terms of new spending promises beyond those that were already made in September. And so it's not particularly ambitious. For that reason, you might think it's particularly achievable. But what we've seen from the Conservatives at the last two elections, when they've, of course, ended up forming a government, is that they haven't actually stuck to what they said they'd do. They've promised quite tight spending plans, in some cases promising cuts, which just haven't been delivered. Next year, spending is going to be about $27 billion higher than the Conservatives promised in 2017. And looking forwards with pressures on public services, there's clearly some public desire for improvements in the health service and so on. It might, that might happen again. Mm. 
Yeah, really fascinating. As a blueprint for five years in government, the IFS has said, the lack of significant policy action is remarkable. I, I picked that out from your report. But look, uh, if you were critical of the Tory party manifesto, you, you seem to be equally so of Labour, it has to be said. Uh, Labour would not be able to deliver on the investment spending increases on the scale that they promised. They simply can't r- ramp up public the public sector as quickly as they would uh, promise. And although it would sort of seem to be... Uh, a radical manifesto very very hard to deliver too i think that's right if the conservative manifesto is notable for its lack of ambition the labor party manifesto is notable for its huge ambition so this covers not just the size of the state they want to ramp up taxes and spending to levels that we haven't sustained in peacetime history it would mean a very different model the economy than what we've seen in the recent past of course there are successful economies across europe that have a bigger state and a different structure of the economy but it would be a change for the UK, and achieving that change would be challenging. In terms of the investment spending, Labour's plans imply about £55 billion of extra investment spending every year. We currently spend about 40 so that would mean more than doubling it. And we know from the past that the government has consistently struggled to meet its investment plans, and for a government, a Labour government seeking to more than double spending, the question really becomes... Where are you going to find the construction workers? Where are you going to find the viable projects in which to invest? Yeah, but Ben, but Ben, on the figures I've seen, it would still mean that the state, the size of the state, if you like, was smaller than Germany's in terms of its involvement in the economy. That's right, but I think there's a really, really important point here, actually, is that, of course, countries like Germany spend much more, the government spends much more as a share of the economy than it does here. That's absolutely true, and there is no reason why we couldn't spend more, perhaps on a German scale. But you cannot just look at how much Germany spends, you've also got to consider how countries like Germany, like France, like parts of Scandinavia, how do they raise the money to fund that spending? And so in countries across Europe, average earners are taxed much more heavily than in the UK. So the problem we've got here is that the Conservatives are promising that we can have decent public services and we don't have to raise taxes at all, nobody has to pay. And you've got Labour promising that we can have world-class public services, but only the very rich and big companies will have to pay. And that's just not true either. Okay, so it's the bottom line, we're all going to have to pay higher taxes, uh, Ben. And if that is the bottom line, what's going to be targeted? Is it corporate income, VAT, stamp duty? You know, what would be in the firing line in, in, in your view? Well, the Labour manifesto includes big increases in corporation tax, for example, and some other quite ambitious changes to the tax system. But in the UK, we raise about two thirds of our revenue from income tax, national insurance and VAT. And if you want to raise big sums of money... They're really the starting place. That's where they're the workhorse taxes, if you like. And so that's why it's quite unwelcome, actually, for the Conservatives to include this so-called triple tax lock, where they promise not to raise the rates of any of those three big taxes in the next parliament. If we were to have an economic downturn, whether it's because of a global recession or a damaging no-deal Brexit, perhaps, that blows a hole in the public finances, the Chancellor, Conservative Chancellor, would have really tied his hands and limited the room for manoeuvre to plug that gap. Ben, finally, I mean, let's bring in the Lib Dems here because they seem to be the one, the only party really saying, hang on, we're going to try and still get down, get the national debt down. That's right. I think it's important to say that in normal times, in previous elections, this Lib Dem manifesto would look quite radical in terms of the extra tax and spend they're promising, particular spending on childcare. It only looks less radical because the Labour manifesto is much grander in scale. And you're right in saying that our best estimate is that only the Lib Dems look to put national debt on a downward path. And in part, that's because we think that their policy of revoking Article 50 and remaining in the EU, whatever other consequences it has for democracy or politics, we think it would be good for the economy. And so that would give them more money to play with. 
And so the Lib Dems do have some radical policies as well. They've just been dwarfed in this occasion by the Labour Party. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.